bluffing. Bluffing? He never bluffs. Shut up! I, 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 you know, I don't think you're gonna drop that torch, my friend. Why not? Because you're not crazy. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 149 and 150, which begin with the Mariner and Deacon each testing the other's resolve, and end with Nord crawling out of the Deacon-mobile. At the tail end of last week, the Deacon was taunting the Mariner by saying, Oh, a single tear rolls down my cheek, and then he continues this week saying, you're going to die for your friend. And the Mariner boldly says, if it comes to that. Do you think the Mariner is genuinely willing to die for Enola? Well, he's got no prospects to speak of. His boat burned down and he's uh, on an enemy ship surrounded by thousands of enemy combatants with guns. So, yeah, I think he's willing. That is very true. If the movie didn't have the happy ending that it does, what would the Mariner do? <laughs> The Mariner punctuates his statement by lighting the flare and holding it directly over the fuel pipe's opening. And the Nord is unwilling to believe that the Mariner would be so reckless, stating unequivocally he's bluffing and he is willing to shoot the Mariner, which is an odd decision because if you shoot the Mariner, he goes limp, he drops the flare, it goes down into the fuel pipe, and then all hell breaks loose anyway. Right. It's a bold move, Cotton. I wonder if it'll pay off for him. (laughs) I find this standoff very interesting. The bridge crew is trying to negotiate a strong word because they're not really trying to negotiate. They're trying to talk him down. And he has a very clear outline of what he wants. He wants one thing. Give me the girl. Give me the kid. That's it. He's not negotiating anything. He's just give me the kid or I'm going to do this. They're both approaching this at such a different point of view and way of handling it. It makes the power dynamic feel rather one-sided. The Mariner literally is holding all the cards. Enola pipes up and says he's not bluffing. He never bluffs. And Deacon reaches back, smacks her over the head, and says, shut up. The visual effect thing that you do when you hit someone where you don't actually hit them, you hit like right in front of them, yeah, it was not done well. (laughs) He clearly did not even touch her. The sound effect was way too heavy for what he might have actually done to her. She didn't flinch at all. It was just not well done. As someone who has been whapped on the back of his head many times over the course of his life, (laughs) it seemed right to me. It didn't seem off in any way. Okay. I've experienced that enough personally where I can be like, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, okay. In the book, she's actually too far away for him to smack and so he just kind of turns and raises his hand and then realizes she's out of reach so he doesn't do anything (laughs) that's wonderful i love it but here in the movie the deacon turns back and he says you know i don't think you're gonna drop that torch my friend and the mariner replies by saying why not deacon says because you're not crazy and that's where he's wrong so so wrong I 
absolutely adore the conclusion of this conversation. I think this is where the Mariner was going the whole time. His intention when he walked up was to drop that thing no matter what happened. Because he thinks that even if he drops the torch down the hole and blows up the ship, that he can get out with Enola. And he's willing to take that bet. I would like to think that the Mariner would have been willing to not blow up the ship if they let him take Enola and leave. I'm willing to bet that the Mariner recognizes that dropping that torch and blowing up the ship would create a situation where escape would be even more difficult. But I'm also willing to side with you, wherein he gets Enola back and then he drops the torch anyway to scramble the smokers so that they have to take care of their ship and they don't have time or attention to take care of him and Enola. And there also needs to be some sort of conclusion with the bad guy. Mm -hmm. If, let's say, they gave him the girl and allowed him to just walk away, well, that doesn't conclude anything. It doesn't keep the deacon from coming back later. Yeah. Kidnapping her again. Right. That's not how you end a movie. You have to actually take care of the bad guy. And this is how this movie does it, by blowing up the ship. Mm -hmm. I was noticing that the mariner takes about four seconds from when the deacon says, because you're not crazy, and they cut back to him. And he stands there, and it's a close-up at first, and then it cuts to a bit wider of a shot where he raises the lit flare, and then he just opens his hands. And it's great because I feel like it's very well-timed. I agree that it was well-timed. I really enjoyed this moment a whole heck of a lot. Of the several times that I watched it over and over and over again, I never stopped enjoying it. Hmm. Let's see how the book handles this scene. The Nord was clutching the railing, glaring down at the man who held out the glowing flare over the hole. He's bluffing. He's not bluffing, the child voice chimed. He never bluffs. Shut up, the deacon said, raising a hand to slap the child, only she was out of range. Then he returned to the railing, and he spoke down in that reasonable tone again. I don't think you're going to drop that torch down that hole, my friend. And why is that? Because you may be stupid, but you're not crazy. The fishman locked eyes with the deacon. A tiny grin appeared on the man's face, and that grin told the deacon that he surely was, as the child had indicated, in a lot of trouble. You should have smiled when you said that, the fishman said. And he opened his hand. The flare tumbled out and down into the shaft on its way to the oil. You should have smiled when you said that. Yeah, it's an interesting statement to make. Yeah, I'm not really sure like what that means or where he's going with that. The deacon and the mariner are going back and forth, and there seems to be an understanding that not all of their statements are literal. They can be wry or they can be sarcastic, and they just have to physically manifest in some way that that's the tone they're going for. Apparently, the Mariner didn't like the way the Deacon said that last part, and so... I don't like your tone. Yep. So I'm going to blow up the ship. (laughs) Sounds like something I would do. I'm very into tone. I am more interested in the tone somebody uses than what they actually say, Mm. which is really, really rough. It's not so much what you said, it's how you said it. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of an SNL Peloton parody where... The negative reinforcement... The negative reinforcement bike. You don't have these instructors saying, you can do it. Give me just a little bit more. I believe in you. And the people in the commercial are like, I don't respond well to that. If you tell me to keep going, I will immediately stop. And so they have these passive aggressive and negative reinforcement trainers that are mean to the people on the bike. And the people on the bike keep going out of spite. Right. 
They're like, yeah, you might as well stop now because you're crap at this. <laughs> Stuff like that. It's hilarious. It's great. Okay, can we talk about the explosion now? Because it's so good. I love how they do it. You've got the deacon initially shouting, no. And then you watch this flare as it drops down the pipe. And I love how they're able to get it to drop exactly down the center of the pipe. Uh And it's lighting up the sides as it goes. We see it fall towards us. We switch the angle. We see it falling down. And then we find ourselves in the tank with the depth gauge. He stands up in his little boat, probably because he heard a hissing noise echoing down the pipe. And the flare drops out of the pipe splashes down into the oil and then massive fireball. My favorite part of this scene is we are looking at the depth gauge. First of all, he says, oh, thank God. And that just made me so happy. One of the best lines in this movie. It absolutely is. And I'm so happy for him because he lives a miserable existence and it's over now. So I'm happy for him that his misery is over. I enjoy so much the reflection of the fireball in his glasses. Absolutely. That image makes me think of Fury Road. It was so sharp. The contrast was so beautiful. That room is completely dark. You've got the dark oil and there's no lighting in there whatsoever. We've got the super pale depth gauge that is now being lit by the fireball with the reflection of the perfect fire in his glasses It's such a beautiful composition of a shot. And it looks like something that would be in Fury Road. It looks like something Dean Semler would do. I'm not a big fan of the dummy that they use. Oh, yeah. the reverse shot of the fire consuming him. It feels very much like the smoker mechanic that got flattened by the jet ski. Uh Uh-huh. But the shot is very quick. (laughs) (laughs) You don't actually have to look at that dummy for all that long. Unless you're obsessively clicking through frame by frame like I am. Like we're talking about one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to dive back into the book real quick. Meanwhile, tumbling down the calibrated shaft, bouncing off its sides with metallic thunks, traveled the glowing fiery flare, rickety rattling down its long deep path where it finally splashed into the lake of oil, where on his raft the deacon's human depth gauge sat biding his time. The depth gauge looked toward the sound of the splash and saw a wall of flame grow before him. Then, more flames raced across the iridescent blackness toward him, a sudden death on its way to embrace him. He smiled, having just enough time to cherish his deliverance. Provider be thanked, he said. As the storm of flame exploded around him, burning him to a glowing human ember, ending his suffering as it sparked new suffering, igniting a larger explosion that sent a fireball rattling through a rotten bulkhead. Rumbling, roaring explosions began in the bowels of the ship and began working their way up as fire and destruction shook the Ds. That was poetic. That's some lovely writing right there. Yeah. I think that is reflected fairly well in the movie. This release from miserable servitude and then the engulfing of the ship, the explosion that rocks the vessel... Which, another visual that I love. We get a really high shot so we can see the entire boat. And then, boom. And fire spews out all over the place. Mm -hmm. Very evenly. It's very lovely. As we see explosions rip through the different levels of the Ds, we're shown the rowers and fire erupts from between their walkways. 
I want to dive back into the book because right after the depth gauge perishes, we see some of the rowers and how they handle this explosion. The ship's volunteer galley slaves were already working up a sweat at their massive oars. One was about to turn to the other to ask, is it getting hot in here or is it just me? When the floor (laughs) ruptured beneath them and flames rose and swallowed them, followed by more flames spewing through the oar holes in the hull as if hell had burst. And yes, it was hot in there. (laughs) Okay. I think they took a cheesy line and, I don't know, made it okay. I don't know if that necessarily would have played in the movie well. No, it wouldn't have. You would have had to include a smoker character that we could follow to the oars in order to set up that joke, and it just would have been too much work. But I like how it's described in the book, because you can just cut to a random smoker and have him explode. That's fine. Yeah. Is it getting hot in here, or is it just me? Everything explodes. (laughs) One of the details I absolutely love about this explosion are the oars flying out of the side of the ship like little rockets. Oh, yes. And in the wide shot of fire bursting out of every hole in the side of the Ds, you can see splashes in the ocean where those oars have landed. I love that they added that detail into the water. Because as we've described before, all of this water is fake. They added it in post, and they added those little details just to show, yeah, the oars didn't go far, but they did shoot out. Yeah, that image makes me think about comic book images, still drawings, where they use lines to indicate movement and direction of movement. And that's what those lines look like. It definitely adds to that composition of the exploding out of all of the holes. This is another very Mad Max-esque image where you've got the blue water, the orange flame, the dark ship. You've got the lines. George Miller loves doing lines like that. Usually it's cars in the desert. Yeah. So yeah, it's another very Mad Maxian shot. It reminds me of the explosion of the compound in Road Warrior. Mm-hmm. Also the People Eater's limousine when it explodes in Fury Road. That's what this reminds me of. Yep. Such a grand history of huge explosions. And this is a worthy addition. As the initial explosion rips everything apart, the deacon is standing up on the bridge and he is wide-eyed at the destruction that is happening around him. Singular eye is wide. (laughs) And while the mariner was rocked by the initial explosion, he wastes no time in beating a hasty retreat off of the deck. And I love how he finds a nearby access hole, leaps into it, And then as he disappears into the hole, another explosion obscures our view of him so that he can make a clean escape. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering what his plan is, which I'm sure we will learn in the coming weeks. But it's not immediately evident what happens next for him. He still needs to get Enola. This wasn't a, okay, well, fine, I'm going to kill us all. Mm -hmm. The doctor said, we all burn. Well, none of the main characters have burned yet. Even though he did the thing. So the Mariner drops down below the deck, and he is almost immediately found by Truin, who commands his followers to get the Mariner. This interaction between the Mariner and Truin is very different in the book. Truin, his search party diminished to a pair of smokers, his mission in tatters, one floor down from the deck of the ship, moved down a corridor, gun in hand, the floor beneath him quavering from explosions. That fish freak did this, he shouted to the two men following him. What I'd give for a shot at that bastard. 
And then, as if the great provider had answered Druin, a figure dropped through a hatchway roughly sawed in the deck above, and landed hard on the floor just as Truin and his pair of smokers rounded the corridor corner. The figure wore a smoker patrol vest, but he was no smoker, it was the intruder, the fishman. And suddenly Truin had more than just one shot at the bastard. He unloaded his pistol in a wild barrage that pinged and zinged on the metal floor and walls. But the shots weren't enough because none of them struck their target. Truin was calming himself to aim better when the intruder swung around a shotgun and blasted Truin, sending the insides of him outside, some on the walls, some spraying the smokers behind him, and then another shotgun blast rocked the two smokers back, spraying the walls with their own insides. All right. In the movie, Truin's guys, they start shooting at the mariner and he takes cover behind a pole. In the book, no, he just straight up blasts them with his shotgun. <laughs> a lot of the mariner's trip through the inside of the D's is different in the book. He ends up fighting a lot more people, but at the end of the day, he does end up hanging from the chain like he does in the movie. But before we get to that, we got to cut back up to the bridge where the deacon is frantically shouting to his lieutenants and really anybody with an earshot of the speakers to kill him or just kill something. This is a new experience for the deacon, the lieutenants, the smokers as a whole. They've never been under attack. They are always the ones on the offensive and are prepared and have a plan and supplies and people are ready in their place to do their thing. They've never really been on the defense before, at least not that we get any indication of. I'm sure someday in the past they've been attacked by somebody more powerful. But the deacon doesn't have the practice of being a defensive leader, mm -hmm. only an offensive leader. So his leadership skills in this situation are don't just stand there, kill somebody, <laughs> which is not leadership. What do you think of Enola's comment here? Oh. She looks up at the deacon and says, was this your big vision? Okay, I like the line, and I think it would have been less bratty and more sarcastic and satisfying if it had come out of somebody older. A couple weeks ago now, we were talking with Rob, Jonathan, and George, but Rob made the comment, why does Enola have to be a child? Mm -hmm. Why is there a child in this movie at all? Why does that character serving that purpose need to be a child? I agree. I don't think it really needs to be a child. Some of the sentiments and the lines that come from Enola would be better served coming from an adult. Mm. Maybe a young adult, perhaps, but somebody more mature, whereas Enola is just being a brat. But I like the line. I like the line. I like the way that it's delivered. I appreciate the observation. I also appreciate how we get a shot of the deacon standing at the microphone looking at his ship on fire we get a chance to ponder that question, if for just a moment, as he's standing there looking at his world falling apart. In the book, it specifies that Enola runs away, and I don't understand why here in the movie she is staying put. I can only assume that she's staying there because that is the last place that the Mariner saw her, and she understands that if someone is looking for you, it's a lot easier for them to do that if you stay in one place. Absolutely. If you get lost and people are looking for you, stop moving and stay put. Let them do the searching. At this point, yeah, all of her captors ran away. The ones who were actually holding on to her ran away. Mm -hmm. 
And the deacon is certainly capable of performing that duty, but he isn't. He's too distracted at the moment. So yeah, the opportunity is ripe for her to run away. She is a smart child. So I suspect that her thinking is, he knows where I am right here. I don't know what route he's going to take, so I can't go meet him halfway. The mariner knows more about the interior of the ship because he's already traversed it. Mm -hmm. She knows nothing of the interior of the ship. Yeah. As the mariner is working his way to the deck in the book, it's explained that he's trying to stay just below the deck and moving in the direction of the bridge. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. He faces obstacles because the ship is falling apart and exploding and whatnot, but he has a very clear objective and direction to move. We cut to the side of the Ds where we see a couple of jet skiers burst out of holes in the side of the ship. I can only imagine that bursting out like that is a normal action minus the fire. Yeah, it does seem like that is how you exit the Ds on a jet ski. Do you think they're running away? Oh, absolutely. They're abandoning ship. Yeah, not just, (laughs) oh no, the vessel's burning, I need to leave, but abandoning the smokers. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. I believe that these two smokers are the ones that we're going to see later on. Oh, okay. Cool, 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 cool. We need to establish here and now that there are two smokers that survived on jet skis and are sitting in the water around the ship. So that way they can be called up later on for the bungee jumping sequence. So we're going to leave those jet skiers outside. Inside, we find Nord behind the wheel of the Deacon Mobile. The book describes the Nord making his way from the bridge to this point. The Nord, with a pair of smokers tagging along, had dropped through the hatchway in pursuit of the fishman and ran towards the sound of shotgun blasts, arriving too late. The fishman was gone. And Truin and the two other smokers lay like so much bloody debris. He followed the logical path the fishman would have taken, and wound up at the same gaping hole where the corridor now came to a new, abrupt end. Gunfire below indicated the fishman may have gone down in order to work his way back up to search for the child. Then the Nord had an idea, a capacity that separated him from your run-of-the-mill smoker. He gathered his two men and headed down to where his master's chariot sat awaiting a man with initiative. I've always wanted to drive that monster, he thought, and grinned. And soon, gathering enough stray smokers to get behind it and push, he was popping the clutch, savoring the roar of the engine lurching to life, and rumbling off to go fishing for Fishman by Deacon Mobile. I don't like the delivery of this line in the movie. The way the Nord randomly says out loud, I've always wanted to drive this monster. There's no reason why he wouldn't in the past have driven that monster. He's second in command. In theory, he can just walk up any time and be like, hey, let me drive this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he took that route about it, if he took the route of asking the deacon, hey, can I take a spin? The deacon wouldn't think enough about pleasurable curiosities to say yes. He would see that as unworthy or meaningless and barely give him a no. (laughs) But you're right. If the Nord went to the people who manage the car and said, hey, I'm going to take it for a spin, they would be like, yeah, cool, no problem. So it's all about who you ask, I guess. Mm -hmm. Now here in the context of the film, the Mariner is hanging from a conveyor chain. He's spotted by Truin. Truin shoots out the chain, and then as the Mariner is swinging like Tarzan through the depths of the Ds, 
Nord commands the smoker next to him to stand and begin firing. And so you've got this odd little shootout between a charging vehicle and a swinging mariner. But the mariner is able to pull off a few shots first, kills the smoker next to the Nord, and the Nord careens headlong into a wall that collapses down on top of him as he drives through it. So he obviously doesn't really know how to drive. Like, it's a miracle he got it going at all. But he's also not paying attention to where he's driving and runs into a wall. Even if he was paying attention to where he was driving, he was going too fast to turn anyway. And those metal rims on that slimy metal floor, there's no way he'd be able to turn it about. Now, in the book, the Mariner lands on the ground and then the Nord is able to drive past the Mariner once and the Mariner rolls out of the way in order to avoid getting run over and the Nord successfully turns the car around for another ramming attack. Ooh, turning this beast around. That's a tall order. For physical production units? Yeah. Yeah, like the amount of space required. It's a big car to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then you've got all the factors of it's on its rims. The place around him is burning. It's fairly tight quarters. The Nord is not a practice driver and he's drunk. (laughs) So the fact that he turned it around in the book is very impressive. Yeah. An interesting detail about the Ulysses cut. The shot of the Nord crawling out of the side of the Deacon mobile is not included in the theatrical cut. So when you're watching that theatrical version, we see the Nord drive through the wall and then we don't see him again until he comes through the beaded curtain up on the bridge. Here in the Ulysses cut, we get a hint that him crashing through that wall was not as fatalistic as some filmmakers would have you believe. He is bloodied, most likely from the shattering windshield and the section of wall falling down around him, but he is otherwise alive. A bit tired looking, sure, but ready to spring into action once again. I'm not sure we really needed this shot of him crawling out of the car. It's fairly standard movie practice that if you don't see a dead body then they're not necessarily dead we've come to expect that in movies yes but did audiences in 1995 expect Mm, that's true this is a fast-paced action movie and he is a second in command you could see him going out this way that's true i appreciate its inclusion in the ulysses cut but that last clue that the Nord is not entirely done is how we wrap this episode. So come back next week. We'll see Nord try to finish off the Mariner. Deacon will decide to fly the unfriendly skies and the Mariner will get hooked on heroics. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 75. We'll see you next time. <laughs>